You're listening to Road to CEO, nothing but in-depth interviews with executives about their journeys as CEO. I'm your host, Will Marlowe, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Road to CEO. I'm here today with Dave Gallarizzo, who has a wide range of experiences in business, including as CEO of Figleaf Software, a DC-based company that he served for 21 years, including 10 as CEO, and which he grew to approximately 70 employees before it was acquired. Since then, he's CEO of Distance Achieved Solutions. Dave, thanks so much for joining us on Road to CEO. Thank you, Will. So um, let's start right at the beginning. Did you always plan to be a CEO? No, I did not. As a matter of fact, I didn't always plan to own my own company. Uh, you know, I went to college, got a degree. I was lucky enough to uh, meet an individual in school, my college roommate, and he had this entrepreneurial bug and he did a really good job of planting the bug into me. Uh, you know, working for a private concern also in DC for a period of time, I came to the realization that I wanted to be in a situation where I could literally affect the organization that I was working for 24 seven if I wanted to. Of course, we won't work 24 seven, but you get my point. I was really interested in working at something where I was truly making it move forward. I can relate to that completely because my my career started off on Capitol Hill. I was a press secretary for a member of Congress. And um, when I started, and it was on the Hill when I actually started my first company. And then I, I had to, as the company grew, I had to leave the Hill to do it full time. And it was one of the things that was really eye opening to me was how much you could move a private sector business compared to a political organization, you know, where they're locked into rigid positions. They, you know, they really don't, unless they're going for another office or something, if they're just staying to be a member of Congress, there's only so much you can really do to, uh, to advance their, their, their goals. And uh, that was, it was both eye opening and really invigorating for me to, to have that realization. It was very true for me as well. I, you know, I, of course, like, private concern. I love it to death. I worked in the trade association world for a very long time. As a matter of fact, Figleaf had many trade association customers. Trade association is kind of a mix between the government and the private concern. Uh, I wanted to be able to truly, you know, make a change as it were. The work that I was doing would actually have a real affectation on the business for which I was working. And I wanted to also be able to make some decisions uh, for that organization. Some of that also came from you know, my background as a Marine and the leadership that you kind of pick up in the Marine Corps. It's, you know, if you want to be a leader or not, I took that bent that rolled right into business. So. Mm-hmm. so there are two things there that I really want to pursue. I'm going to start with, with the first, though. So what, um, tell us a little bit about Figleaf. What, what type of company was it? What were the customers like? You know, g- give us some background on Figleaf. Figleaf Software was a premier organization for many years. It was primarily focused on three lines of business by the time we sold it. Uh, the, the first part of it was, you would call it software development, but the vast majority of what the organization did was around content management and implementation of content management systems and the marketing that went with that and the story for the organization and for the users that utilized that you know, this content managed systems that we built for a variety of clients. And our clients span the government sector. We had a lot of higher education, a lot of universities in Wisconsin. We had some private concern, but by and large, uh, the big parts of what we did were on the federal government side, uh, higher education side, trade association side, and then some private concerns. We also were a, a product resale business. So we had diversified into product resale. We were a very large Google uh, search appliance customer. Google used to sell a, uh, you know, a, a rack mounted search appliance to crawl your internal content or your custom content. And we sold that for many, many years. We were a small company, but we were one of the four largest uh, resellers of the, the Google search appliance. We also resold a lot of the, uh, the, the Google desktop business or what they used to call 
the Google suite for Office, you know, which is now like, I guess, Google Workspace. Uh, we were a big Adobe uh, reseller for a very, very long time. When I sold the business, we were still doing a lot of resale on the Adobe platform. And then we had some other cats and dogs. We had jumped right into the marketing side. So we had become a HubSpot partner and we were growing that business, reselling HubSpot. Uh, we had built a really nice, uh, you know, run rate and uh, monthly recurring revenue MRR on the HubSpot platform. And then the third thing that we did was we were a training organization, primarily technically tra uh, technical training. And we had a really big uh, technical uh, training business for a very long time. That was one of the things that we had really seen a drop off on uh, as we sold the business that, you know, that training business had, had kind of taken a hit over the years because things had changed. That's kind of, you know, truly who we were and a lot of the things that we did. We did a lot of stuff for a small company. So. And so you mentioned a, a, a college roommate, I think it was, who influenced you. Was that right? That, uh, that is correct. One of my best friends. I'm still super close with him. His name is uh, Steve Drucker, uh, as a matter of fact. And Steve and I, we uh, lived together in college. We went through computer science at the University of Maryland. Uh, that department was very much like the Marine Corps. It was a uh, rite of passage. There was not very much help. And you just made through, you know, it was by the 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 fight that you had in you. And Steve and I, we we got together like this and it was like a war. And we fought that war together and came through the other end. Um, I went to work for a trade association that I worked through in college that, as a matter of fact, I wouldn't have had that job had Steve not told me there was a job posting on a board. I took that job and met one of another one of my closest friends who I've been friends with for 30 years. Um, and Steve had, you know, given me this idea. I worked the trade association business from the time I graduated for maybe six years. It was about six years. And Steve had an opening in the business. I went over and uh, he gave me some ownership in the company. And I took over the consulting division for about 12 years or so. Uh, and then we decided to rebrand our company as a, a veteran-owned business. And to do so, we needed to swap roles. Steve took over the presidency and uh, I took over the CEO ship or became the CEO. And we did that for an extended period of time. So yeah, he's a good friend, good friend. So. so talk about that dynamic a little bit, if you don't mind. I'd, I'd love to hear um, you know, how you decided ultimately that you should take over as CEO and, and how your responsibilities shifted. In that. Well, what would what I would say is this is a what I consider to be a fantastic story. Steve decided I didn't. Uh, what happened is, you know, Steve, as the CEO, he decided that we had a, a veteran presence in our company and that we should utilize that veteran presence as a lightning rod to grow our federal government business. To do that, those of us that were veterans, uh, I, you know, our business had more than one owners that worked the business. At that time, we had four. Steve was our CEO. I was the head of consulting and I had all of our consulting business. We had a head of sales. Um, and then we had one other owner who came under the consulting umbrella, but he had ownership in the company, a couple of silent partners and didn't work the business. Steve decided that we should become a veteran-owned business, take the two of us that were vets that had ownership, restructure things so that uh, the two of us would own 51% of the company. And one of us would have to step into the role of CEO. And I was the logical choice at the time based on skills and abilities. So he came to me and said, hey, I've gone to our law firm and I've figured a way to make this happen. And you're going to have to step into the role of CEO for that to happen. So I said, okay. I can take that on. So fascinating. Yeah, it's pretty cool, actually. It is the the dynamic of you know Steve and I working together. You asked about that. Mm -hmm. There's a an old story that anybody that listens to this podcast that knows me, unfortunately, has heard probably 25 times. But we were in college together. We were working on a on a on a, a project. It was a group project, and we had worked on it together. He had built this very complex algorithm called BuildTree. It's technical stuff, right? Building a what's called a V-tree, stuff that's used in like database engines. Um, and there were some bugs in it. I just couldn't figure out how to change the algorithm and actually make it work. But I could figure out what the issues were. So I built a secondary add-on to the algorithm called FixTree. So you build tree, fix tree. And when I handed him the code back, he said, what's this fix tree? I was like, 
Well, I, I see where you were heading with Build Tree, and it's almost 100% there. And I think if we work together, since we're working together as a team, I can do Fixed Tree, and we can have a full solution that is super successful. And that was the literally the mantra of everything that Steve and I did together at Fig Leaf, which was he was that Build Tree guy. He still is to this day one of the most exceptional idea guys that I know, and he gets things off the ground and running. And he's a finisher, and he's just—it's fantastic. But us together in our business, it was very much a build tree, fix tree sort of way of working together. The two of us together were very much stronger than either of us in our company in that business uh, would have been independently or by ourselves. So it was very cool. Very cool. Very cool. So um, I didn't realize that there were multiple people who were veterans at, um, or was it, was it just the two of you or were there, were, uh, were there others who were also veterans at, at Fig Leaf? Well, in an early incarnation of the business, we'd had another owner who okay. he, he left a few years after I got there, five or six years after I got there. I want to be, be fair, I think six years. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a veteran as well. And he had a small percentage of ownership. And then there was another individual who's actually still working for the sold version of Fig Leaf, right? Um, who was a veteran as well. One guy was Navy, the other was Army. I was a Marine. We didn't have any Air Force. Or we actually did at one point. We had one owner that he was an Air Force guy. But by the time we got to 2009, when we restructured the company, um, at that point, it was just myself and this other gentleman, Dave Watts, who had vet, we were had ownership in the company and we were vets. So. That was the, the entire restructuring. And then we further restructured the business again after that to get our service disability, which gave us a, another step up. So so is the is the Marines a good background for, uh, for a CEO? Well, it all depends on what you did in the Marine Corps. It can be. I was the individual that was first I was enlisted, then I was a, mm-hmm. an officer. And then as part of what I did as an officer, I was a commanding officer, which meant I ran a company of Marines, uh, you know, up about anywhere between 85 and 100 Marines that reported to, to me through this, this structure in the Marine Corps. That being a, being a commanding officer or more importantly, being an officer in general, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially if you've got a fair amount of responsibility in that position, not all officers are in positions with a lot of responsibility, but company level leadership, or if you're in a battalion, um, that is a great background for, uh, for company level leadership on the, in the private sector. You have to be careful in what translates uh, some of the things that I attempted to implement in our, you know, my first business in Fig Leaf um, were things that just don't translate exceptionally well between the military and the private sector. Uh, one of the nice things about the military is if I tell you to do something, you have no choice. You have to do it. Uh, in the private sector, I can tell you to do it, and your job might be dependent upon it. Um, but at the end of the day, especially in technology, you've probably got a lot of other opportunities. If you don't want to do it, you walk. Uh, and I didn't really bridge that gap for a period of time. <laughs> right? I always kind of thought, you know, leadership's leadership, but you learn. It's like anything else. But I always thought to this day that my background. Um, in the Marine Corps was an exceptional sort of lead in, primarily with dealing with stress, primarily Mm -hmm. with having to think on your feet. Um, You know, especially if you've deployed into a combat zone and you've had to think on your feet um, in that zone where you just have to make quick decisions. Absolutely. Uh, And the Marine Corps also has a number of, we have, you know, principles and traits of being a leader. We use this acronym, JJ did pot, tie buckle, right? Justice, judgment, decisiveness, right? Those things played in exceptionally well. And I've, to this day, used those with the people that work for me, right? Be decisive, have good judgment, have the ability to change your decision if you need to, um, based on your judgment. If, you know, the decision that you made is wrong, switch. So that kind of thing. I, I've talked to a number of, of CEOs who have a background in in either the Army or the Navy, and um, and actually one also who uh, was a former was a Marine, and um, uh, and it seems to me like the discipline, the structure, the experiences do seem to lend themselves very very well to you know a leadership role in the private sector. 
I I have found that it can be it it it, it has a, a distinct level of usefulness. Of course, so many great CEOs out there, you know, they 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 don't have that background. And I also do think that, you know, there's a we we use this title of chief executive in a company. And, you know, there's such a difference between if you're running a thousand people or 500 people or 10,000 or even 50 or 100 people, right? There are a lot of different things that you have to kind of think about um, that you have to do, right? Uh, You know, but there's some very basic things, especially, you know, leadership by example, uh, in my opinion. That's a big thing. It's always been a huge thing for me. Uh You know, leadership by example. If you set the example, it almost always flows down. At least you think it does. Most of the yeah. time it does. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it so I, I coach uh, uh, at the high school level as a volunteer activity. I, I coach wrestlers. And um, I, I think, you know, when they see you doing something as the coach that you're asking them to do, there is something that, that I mean, not that I ever need to step out on the mat. I never, you know, I don't need to compete. I don't, but, but them seeing the coach doing what, uh, what he's asking the rest of them to do, I think that that goes a long way, and it really does help foster, um, uh, you know, a good culture, if nothing else. It it it, it absolutely does. Um, you know, one of the things the Marine Corps actually had to learn for good leadership is listening. In the in the private sector, you got to listen. You have to listen. You have to listen. Um, and you have, not only do you have to listen, you have to hear, and you have to understand. And you have to be able to figure it out and you have to put people in place that might be a better listeners than you. And they might bring that stuff up to you. And the Marine Corps didn't always do that. I wouldn't necessarily say that when I joined in the 80s, I think we thought we did. Uh, but now or, you know, I got out in 2011. I only did 25 years. But when I got out, we were much better listeners and we had started to to truly sort of think about how things bubble up. Right. We had a commandant that said, hey push up the chain very respectfully, right? In the proper manner, the way things are supposed to be. Um, and we did this at Fig Leaf. We really tried to listen to the people that work for us. Any of them that listen to this podcast, I am sure there's somebody that said, no, you didn't. You guys didn't hear me, right? Uh, we always tried, right? Doesn't mean that we were successful, but I said, we at least, you know, we at least tried. We thought, you know, we tried. Definitely by the end, we were trying to listen. We we're trying to hear. Um, that's part of it. And, you know, implement that in the things that we did as best we could. So when I was very early in my career, I, I worked br- briefly with a company called Nine Lenses, and they um, were all about surfacing information in, and having it bubble up within a company because and, and I just remember learning from uh, at that with that experience that information really has a very hard time flowing upwards. You know, mm-hmm. you, tr- you know, you, 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 as CEO, you think you know what's going on through at every level of the company. Maybe you know you you know you do your best to listen, but it's so difficult to really. I mean, if if they're and I'm sure as as companies get bigger and bigger and bigger, the challenge gets gets bigger. And mm-hmm. um, I, I remember with that company Nine Lenses, you know, it really was drilled home because they, they had a software product that was designed to address that. And I just remember that was the first time I was ever exposed to that. And, and then as I became a CEO, um, I saw it firsthand. So difficult to know. I mean, you ha- it's, it's just a constant um, uh, effort, I think, that has to be put forth to, to try to get that information to come up to, to the C-suite. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And, the, and the, one of the biggest issues you run into, especially is if you put people out and about in there. Mm-hmm. They're working and they're independent and they're doing things and you're not interacting with them a lot. Uh, you know, it, it seemed like every single time I thought we had that down and we were interacting with them, you know, something happens. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my current concern is, you know, much smaller than, than what I had with Fig Leaf, even at the, you know, the point that we sold the company. Um, and even, even with just like 10 people, including consultants, which is where I am now, mm-hmm you know, I still miss sometimes something that's actually happened. I'm still not hearing or just last night, you know, I'm working with uh, one of the teams that I have and the, you know, the team, the the lead dev is saying, look, I think this is really the way that we should do it. And I had an idea. And at the end of the day, the idea was wrong. I said, you know what? You're right. Let's flip that around. Let's do it your way. 
it makes more sense. A lot of people have a hard time doing that, listening and then changing, especially if you're the one in charge, whether your company's 15 million or a half a million, uh, really and truly being able to say, this was my idea. And somebody saying, it's a great idea, but you might want to change it a little bit, or it's a fantastic idea. Let's move it around here. I put a lot of ideas in front of the people at Fig Leaf. And I would say that nine out of 10, we didn't implement because somebody goes, boss, you didn't think about this. Like, you know what I didn't? That's going to make it too difficult. But the you know, the, that one idea out of 10, so 10 out of 100, uh, typically became super successful because of the buy-in that we had, the people that we were listening to, right? Yeah. I mean, but again, no matter what, there are those that would have left our company and said, you didn't listen, you didn't pay attention, you didn't do this or you didn't do that. Um, I, I The greatest example of listening that I will tell you is that, you know, I missed the mark on open source as Big Leaf CEO. I missed the mark. Um, you know, open source was coming. I, I, I said we were a content management company. We were implementing paid content management mm-hmm. systems. Uh, people were paying us. We resold them, which is still a big thing today. Yeah. But the open source side, particularly this platform called Drupal, right? Mm-hmm. You've heard of WordPress. There's Drupal. I missed the boat. I mean, I just did not see the forest for the trees. And one of the people that worked for me, super smart guy, still a great friend of mine, you know, he just finally hammered it in. He mentioned to me over and over and finally it got through and he was like, we really need to do this. And we did. Uh, we did. We eventually got into that space. Had we not gotten into space, I'm not sure, you know, where, what would have happened to the business. And I, you know, I, I considered that probably my greatest failure, which was, mm. man, how did I miss this? You know, we had diversified our business. We were doing lots of things. Yeah. You know, we had we were originally this platform, this one technology, we had, you know, development technology, and we had moved to like a bunch of different others. Steve got, you know, he had said, hey, we need to do this and do this type of development. It's fantastic. It was added to the business. It was a, a great thing. But that open source thing missed it. And had, it, had I not really listened to the people that were part of the organization, I still wouldn't have pulled it in, right? Yeah. And it's that ego. I, I wouldn't say it was ego that initially yeah. didn't get me to listen. I just kind of thought I knew what I was doing. But eventually, you know, it gets through. And if you have any way of being introspective, which, you know, is not always the case when you're, you know, at the top of the pile, then you see that quote unquote forest for the trees and you can change. You can ad- adapt. So, yeah, that's fascinating. I think, I think a lot of CEOs probably have a lot of difficulty with that. So when it came to that specific example, do you, any, uh, any thoughts on what it was about open source that was, that was challenging for you to want to see it as an opportunity? I think it was a personality flaw, right? It's the best way to put it. It was a personality flaw. I simply attributed the way that I would look at things if I ran a, an organization that was purchasing a product or implementing something like this. And I thought there's no way that people are going to want to go out to some large community to get their answer. They're going to want somebody that they've purchased from that they can go to and, you know, hold their feet to the fire if it doesn't work. Right. Uh, The great example, we just got our floors redone. Right. And we had them refinished. There's a problem. We called the owner yesterday. That owner came out took a look at it. The owner is going to fix it. In the open source community, it would be 50 people that would have to fix it. Well, that's a flooring company. It's not software development or product development. And I was just really tied into the old way of doing product development. I was like, hey, that's the only way that you can do things. That was one of the greatest learning experiences of my entire life because I do not do that anymore. I don't look at something and go, oh, that could never work. I try to evaluate it based on its merit and say, that's that's a possibility, right? That might work. Why don't we give this a shot? Uh, the people that I work with right now, I might take something and go, I first thought, I'm not sure this is going to work for us. And the next thing you know, we go ahead and we implement it because my first thought is, I don't know about that. And then we go through and we actually do it. And that's okay. It's okay to say up front, I don't, I don't know about that. And then think about it and say, oh man, that really is a fantastic idea. Let's make it happen. Again, don't get you know, dug in. And, you know, a lot of what we discuss here specifically, too, is smaller companies can be a bit more agile, right? It's a lot easier. There's a reason that a large organization like GE just broke up into three parts, right? This type of thing that we're discussing 
is so much harder, right? Um, in large businesses, very, very, you've got lots of people in overhead and, you know, money tied in and policy and procedure. Smaller businesses, it's, you know, it can be a little bit more nimble or you can spend a little bit of money doing some R&D and trying to add something into your business, um, especially if you've been, you know, financially responsible. So. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about company size for a moment. I think, I think, I, as I understand it, Fig Leaf grew to be about seventy people. Uh, how big was it when you when you joined the company? Oh, when I joined Fig Leaf, I'd have to count it on my hands, but it was, uh, you know, one, two, three. I might have been like the fifth or sixth person that came mm. along, and then we got up to seventy and we came back down. I, you know, when we sold it, maybe we were. We were between 40 and 50. I don't remember the exact numbers that we had, but we, we went up and we went down on purpose, but also certain factors in the industry, um, you know, affected us. Frankly, Obamacare affected us significantly in a negative way. And we had, we had brought some of our staff down because of the overhead costs that were assigned to us. So... That's but, right. So, the, the, yeah. So there are rules, I think, on whether you're 50 or more uh, employees. So you, so you wanted to come down to that threshold because of the, the costs associated with that, with that law, I guess. Is that in, in DC, it was 25 and above. So uh, the federal rule was 50 and above, but DC made it 25 and we were a DC company. Hmm. Uh, so we were required, but see Fig Leaf had always provided healthcare for its employees. We always paid a hundred percent of the employees hmm. healthcare, 100%. Every year that I was there, it was 100%. Um, and then we subsidized the family plan pretty significantly because we could afford it. We had, we had been in a, a, a group of small companies. And because we were in this group of small companies pulled together, you know, for a number of years, my annual increase was no more than one or one and a half percent. Our health insurance went up very, very little. But on the uh, the advent of Obamacare, that's something I missed too. I didn't really see the you know how that train was going to hit me and how my cost mm-hmm. because nobody did right. They didn't tell you that we're going to do this and it's going to happen overnight. We had a multi six figure increase mm. in our overhead costs after tax wow. that we simply couldn't absorb as an organization, and we had to let certain people go. And that was six years before we sold. Almost. Well, Obamacare was like 2012, 2013, mm-hmm. and we sold in 2018. So it was all 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Yeah, almost six years. Um, we never replaced those individuals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we just didn't we didn't work it back in because that overhead cost was pretty you know significant. What we ended up doing was finding cheaper ways to do it using people in the industry and part time and, mm-hmm. you know, com- external companies that saved us significant amounts of money. Um, those are some of the hard decisions you have to make, whether you're in a very large company or you're in a very small company. Uh, you know, but as I see, you know, what goes on in industry today and you you read the news and the things that people will say, if you've ever, I always make the joke, if you've ever had to make payroll, um, and if you've ever had a number of people that are reliant on the organization that you helm for their livelihood then you realize that you have to make some decisions like that that unfortunately might affect a small number of people. And that's, it's unfortunate and horrible at any time you have to let people go. Yeah. Um, but it's for that greater good. So. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly can relate to that. I think, um, it, and you mentioned being decisive and I think that that's, you know, they go hand in hand in a lot of ways, you know, they're, they're, you, you've got to make certain decisions and you don't always have all the information and, you know, you know that there's going to be challenges with either one. So you sometimes just have to make the, the decision for the greater good. You absolutely do. Any, any time that, you know, if you're looking at your organization and you, you know, you think about what you want to do with that organization um, you know, one of the biggest, I, w- I wouldn't say it's a huge joke, but I went through the, uh, you know, I-, I went through the the Vistage school, right? I did the, oh, yeah. you know, the, the coaching and which was fantastic. Best money I spent. But, you know, there's always that Vistage is big about set that goal, hit that goal, make that goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a huge fan of that. What's my goal? What am I going to do? What's the company goal? What are we going to do? Where are we trying to head? 
um, set that mission statement. You, you know, you, you watch movies and people are always joking about them. Um, but at the end of the day, really setting up a basic statement that people can live by, setting up core values in your businesses so that people sit down and they understand. And you just basically say, if you're making a decision, go back to the core values and ensure that as you look at these core values, you're, you're living up to them. Would I say that everybody always did that in our organization? No. But did we have it sitting out there? Absolutely, we did. Mm-hmm. And we would reference it. And, and if we were having a business meeting, I would say it a lot, go back to the core values, right? What is our value? What are we doing here? What are we trying to do now? As you diversify your company, it becomes harder. Uh, you know, Jack Welch always said, if you can't be number one or number two, don't do it. You know, in a small business like ours, you know, like Fig Leaf was, we did, you know, we tried to focus. My new company that I've had since I sold Fig Leaf um, is very focused on a few things that are all in, interlaced with each other. It's much, much easier to kind of, you know, play through. And, and it's funny because I've taken on some things that were outside of that. What ends up happening, you, you start getting those problems where you're losing that, that laser focus mm. that you want to do. Um, it can be very, very easy to do that. It's also hard as a CEO to market your business when you do too much. Again, I don't, you know, how many companies have we now seen that for fiscal reasons that are large businesses in the last two weeks or three weeks that are splitting into smaller concerns? Yeah. A lot of it's fiscal, but a lot of it's also focus, right? Those businesses are going to do the one thing that they're supposed to do. So. Yeah. um, It's interesting because, you know, as a marketer myself, um, you know, I, one of the things I learned early on is that. It, it, it appears that the textbook marketing strategy is always to go narrow. You know, you mm-hmm. just, you, you go as narrow as humanly possible. And, um, and now I remember I, I heard a quote not long ago, um, Mark Zuckerberg talking about um, megatrends and, you know, right. the definition of a megatrend. I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly how we define it, except that it's a massive, massive trend that changes lifestyles and and countries and all that and and basically he says when when you're talking about a mega trend the ni- the niche can never be small enough you know it's always going to be big you know mm-hmm. and and so you yeah. just want to go narrow 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 um and i think there's a lot of truth in that you know i think as companies do that and then they get big i think then their temptation is to continue to diversify and add on all kind co- and maybe they lose some of that but as you're growing you know, it is so valuable to be able to, to have that narrow focus. It's important. And, you know, since I sold Fig Leaf, I, I, it's, it's very interesting. We were, you know, Fig Leaf was a consulting company that did product resale training and, mm-hmm. and this application development and, you know, website work. And it was really that, that software side that for us as an organization was the harder, you know, because we were doing government and we were doing private. And, you know, if I went back to like day one, right, if I could have gone back to day one, and I would say day one that I came in, I, you know, because Steve brings me over and he's like, hey, you're going to get some ownership. And, you know, I got this ownership and I was running a division in the company, et cetera. But if both of us, he and I, we chat about this, you know, over and over. We went, if I could go back, what ended up happening you know, after September the 11th, we saw this big drop off and our, our business grew and then it tanked and then it grew again, right? So it was like this arc up and then, oh my gosh, we we're worried if we we're going to be able to keep the lights on and then, boom, right? We just kind of, we just went way up. And we thought we have to be super diverse. We only had to be a little bit diverse and we kind of missed the train a little bit early on being in DC, figuring out that sort of let's be a, government consulting company that wants to, we wanted to be cool, right? We wanted to be the cool dudes that do the cool work. And that's fantastic. But if we really cared about longevity and, and revenue and the things that I like, what I get, what I've always gotten a charge out of, um, it's funny, a friend of mine, he said to me, uh, you know, you're, when I mentioned business, he's like, it's, you know, business to you, businesses. And I'm like, you don't understand. My charge is not the amount of money that I pocket. My, to me, the greatest, the, the greatest success that I ever had, right, at, at Fig Leaf in the period that I ran it was that we had some people that are still there to this day that have grown families off of that concern, right, from little children to kids that are getting pretty old at this point. And 
I am the, I am the, I love the small business owner in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the small business owners still employ above, I guess we still employ about 50% of the people. And it was always a bigger charge for me on the business side that there were humans, no matter how many, right? There were people in our country that were, were pulling their living together through the organization that we ran, we were in charge of, and that we were, you know, you know, targeting uh, towards business or moving through the, you know, moving through the, through the, the river, right, of business, as it were, from point A to point B. Um, that's kind of the charge. And I think that's sort of an important thing to think about, uh, you know, around, uh, you know, sort of that attitude, as it were, when you're, when you're working in the industry or any industry, you know, at all. Yeah, I, I love that myself. I mean, I, I think that um, for me, I, I have a very related um, passion, which is team building. I love, I love having you know people come together and become a high performance team. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that's it's that's totally connected to just kind of having that understanding that there are people in the country who are living their lives and they're doing it, you know, uh, through a company that you're that you're leading and you're building. Oh, yeah, no, it's, you know, it's kind of, I I think it's really interesting, too, because, you know, as I was, you know, as I was getting out when we started, you know, down this road, you know, Fig Leaf again, consulting, when I, when I left, I started another consulting company, but at the same time, I bought into a product company, and I was the CTO of that product company for a year, I helped them to get it, the, you know, the, the product, it's an HR product, but it was, uh, it was basically built, but there were some things that needed to happen to get it to full launch. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, pulled me in and said, Hey, you know, you want to buy in? I did. And they said, can you CTO this thing to a certain, you know, up to a point, which I did. And then at a certain point, they asked me to step aside, which I did. And another CTO came in, um, you know, for the next round, as it mm-hmm. were. And a product business is very different, man. You know, consulting business is one thing, product, a lot of products don't make it, et cetera. You learn a lot of things if you've got any investment or you're, you know, you're, you know, part of the concern in a product business. You learn lots and lots of different things because that's a different world, right? Uh, consulting, the types of things that we do, that's uh, a very different type of company. Although you can productize your consulting business. Yep. And if you do, you're much more successful. Um, and then you see what happens in public companies that are product based. And I have no experience, right? I wouldn't be the guy to choose to helm a uh, you know a public business, right? Uh, you know, I I don't have that background in you know how a, a public company has to respond to the to the stockholders, right? Those are very different yeah. things. So when we talk about CEOs, and you you know somebody listening to the podcast, this is for the you know the person that. You know that these types of topics are the person, the types of concerns you know that we play in versus you know those different mm-hmm. concerns. You see that when you work with the Vistage Group, they take the people from different areas and they move them around, right? So that they're kind of working with other people that are doing a lot of the same things. The CEO uh, sector is a very, very large set of people, and there's some people over here and people over here and here. But the point that I'm making is you're no less important, especially if people are working with you, especially if people are making money um, and they're counting on the revenue that they're making through the organization that you own. So So this is a topic that I I really love. um, And I'm curious if you you agree with this or not. Um, I will often talk about the difference between a services company and a product company. And I Mm -hmm. will say that with a product company, the product is the hero. And that can cover up a lot of sins mm-hmm. for many companies. With a services company, the people are the heroes. You know, they somebody. Are. So, and 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 my belief is that you end up with far better management at services companies. Not all the time, certainly not all the time, but you really should end up with better management because you don't have that product to hide behind. You have to. Uh, you have to have a high functioning services company in order for it to be a great company. Whereas a product company, maybe the product is so amazing that, you know, I'm not going to say that they're not going to suffer because of bad management, but it's just a very different dynamic. Um, do you agree with that? Well, what I would say is that 
you know, I, I, I hate equivocating, but what I would say is that I've got some insight, luckily, um, some deep insight into a couple of product companies out there. And what I'm seeing is in a, in a general sense, the people, the, the hair, what I would say is the heroism of the individual player in a services company has, is much more evident because mm -hmm. those individuals, if they do not perform, then the company suffers immediately for their lack of performance. Mm -hmm. In a product company, what ends up happening because of the, the things that I've seen um, you know, with some businesses that I'm tied into is you have great heroics in product companies on the part of certain individuals that help to push all these initiatives out the door. And people don't realize that, they don't see it. Just the initiative is out the door because it's it's you know a product business, but they don't see what's really happening in the background where somebody's stepping up and grabbing a flag and they're yeah. they're charging into that to that danger to make it happen. So you know from a dynamics perspective, you see a lot of the same actions, but what ends up happening is uh, you know for lack of a better way of saying it, this podcast you show your ass in a services company when you fail, right? When we fail the fig leaf. Man, sometimes the whole world would see your fail. Yeah, right? the whole world, and you lose clients like that, right? You lose them like that. It's very simple, and you fail once. And I, I we had so many of these relationships where something went. We might have worked with these people for a long time, and something went off, and we were never able to repair it because it showed, right? And I think that's that's. I, I mean, I hope that kind of matches yeah. in with what you're saying. It does it's very much the case. Now, if your product fails, of course, in a product company, you're going to go out of business. That's right. right? You got to get it across the. You get it across the line. But you know, I'm seeing this. What's really interesting is my. You know, one of my large clients. We did a very large uh, effort, and the way we treated this effort, it's a line of business application. We treated it like a product. We did a minimum viable product. We launched that. We had the basics of what we needed. And then for an extended period of time, we keep adding things in that should have been there that weren't. And we, because we treated yeah. it like a product, everybody's super happy. But yeah. you can't always do that when you're a services business. You don't always get that kind of client and you don't always get that kind of effort. So you, you don't, um, I think, and, and, and all services businesses, I'm sure, are, you know, have differences and are different. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely try to productize services with my company. Um, and it's true that, you know, you can't, I mean, it's no matter how much you productize a service, it's, it is still a service. Um, but I think you can go very far with it. You know, you can, you know, sure. you, you know, yeah. you can really define it well and, and that, and you create tremendous benefits, you know, as you said. Absolutely. You know, especially if you're supporting people, it yeah. also depends on the industry you're in. If you're doing ground up like app dev, which is the primary part of, you know, what, with the business that I have now does, you know, that's a little bit harder. You can, you yeah. can productize your process. Um, but if you're helping somebody manage your cloud or their DevOps, like we do as well, yeah. I mean, those things are very much, you know, we charge this much, we do these things, yeah. you get this much, et cetera. We did some of that at Figly. We weren't exceptionally successful. We, you know, you're an older company. If you don't, we don't do it out of the gate. You know, if I look back and said, if I could go back to like, you know, right when I stepped into CEO or more importantly, like way back, you know, when I first went to Fig Leaf, um, you know, what I would say to myself is, you know, be able to look at your organization, figure that part out. What can you productize and then figure out the right people that can pull this off. Right. Understand your limitations as the CEO. What are you good at? Right. I think there's, especially in smaller companies, there's this thought process, the CEO needs to know all of these different mm -hmm. things. You don't, you don't. When you first start, you're by yourself. Maybe you started with some other people, um, but you have to be able to just say, this guy over here understands this and I really don't get it and I really don't care, um, right? And step away from sort of that ego train that says, I'm supposed to do this. doesn't matter if you're supposed to do it. You've done this, you've started it, you've got this business bring those right individuals in and, you know, surround yourself with them and figure out who they are um, and do that right out of the gate, right? You have to do that right out of the gate because if you don't, um, what ends up happening is you run into these problems and it's very, very difficult to grow. And 
I don't think we realized that at Figly for a long time. It took us a while to kind of get to that sort of, you know, place. And, you know, it's, it is in a services business, you can limp along with that kind of thing. It's so much harder in a product business. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you don't have the right salespeople in a product business, you know, you're going to have an issue. If your tech is off, we got no product. If it's, you know, uh, if your development is, I mean, if you don't have any true service, right, model to support it, you know, I mean, all these things are, they kind of go hand in hand. So it's kind of in a, it, it is an interesting sort of way to look at it. Um, but it's also very true, again, when you're helming a company of 20 people or 10 people, um, you know, starting to think about things at a productized level, that's, you know, it, it, it's very important, especially if you have a goal of growing it. Like right now, for the business that I have, you know, where I'm at, I have a level of comfort and my growth is organic. Um, but if I want to ramp it up, which I do, right, um, you know, then I'm going to have to turn that on its head to change that around. If that's the, if that's the, you know, thing that I'd like to do with this company, right, I got to productize, I got to make it repeatable, even as a services business and make it easy for people to understand what they're getting from us. Absolutely. So what, so you've, you've obviously you had, uh, at mo- about 70 people at one point for um, fig leaf. Now you, I think you mentioned you're about 10 people at the moment. What do you prefer? What, what's your, uh, what, what size company are you, do you like running? You know, I would say that, I would say that I have enjoyed, I enjoyed both paths, the smaller business. And I've got a lot of consultants, basically primarily, you know, consultants. Um, I enjoy I enjoy the smaller business at the moment because for so very long, the larger company, as much as it fit my ego, which was I wanted, you know, to be somebody, I mean, the lack of a better way of looking, I wanted to be somebody important, right? And if you've got a business with, you know, X number of people and, you know, you're running that, making your payroll, you know, I I always attributed that to being an important guy. Mm -hmm. I never, I mean, it, you know, cards on the table. Right. That, and that's also, you know, what I consider a bit of a character flaw. But there was a level of enjoyment there. Um, but I also didn't enjoy the fact that, you know, you're making payroll every two weeks and it's hefty. So, uh, you know, the smaller business, you don't have that. Right. It's not as yeah. not as sexy. But, uh, you know, you do you know, you don't have that level of recognition. Right. Um, but you also don't have the headaches of, you know, especially if you build a business around primarily consultants. If there's work, they're working. If not, they're not, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, some of the headache bleeds away, but then the sort of the ego piece bleeds away, right? So you got to kind of, you got to be able to sort of work within both areas. For me, I've had to be able to work in. I don't know that, you know, I don't know that I have a super preference uh, to either side. Both were different. I can't say that I liked you know, being at the helm of fig leaf more than I like doing what I'm doing now or m- more doing what I'm doing than, you know, being at the helm of fig leaf. Um, you know, I, 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 I enjoyed both at times and I've disliked both at times. That's the best way to put it. Um, there were lots of things that, I mean, well, you know, when we decided to sell our business, I thought, you know, it's uh, uh, one of those things where you, you look at, you know, what you have going on and, you, you know, we decided it was time, right? It was time. We'd run it long enough and we wanted to give somebody else an opportunity to move somewhere else. We got it as high as $15 million. That's a pretty good concern. And, uh, you know, we decided that after all the time that we had put in, that, hey, you know, we think somebody else is going to take it from this to somewhere else. That was the goal, at least, in doing it. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a sense of, you know, how much do you enjoy it versus, you know, you're really small. What I will say is, you know, from the ground up here doing what I've been doing, there is a little bit more, uh, you know, enjoyment in sort of trying new things and trying to grow something that was nothing. So that's kind of an interesting factory for me. I didn't have that with Figly. When I went there, five or six people, and it it was making some level of revenue money. We did grow it and I did enjoy that, but it was there. Um, this wasn't here. I just kind of, you know, I kind of did it right. It was like, Hey, I sold this. I'm starting this. And it's been almost four years, man. So, you know, you know, this, if you're in business four years and 
you know, you're, you're working full time. You, there's a, there are markers. So. Absolutely. It's, it's an, it's an accomplishment. And I want to hear more about your, your current concern, but, but first you mentioned that Vistage was the best money you spent. Um, what did you learn at Vistage? I'll tell you, I'll tell you a couple things that I learned at Vistage. Um, the most important thing that I learned at Vistage was how to evaluate the people that I had in my organization that were right next to me, the, mm-hmm. the ones that surrounded me. Um, it's interesting, the Vistage model of looking at an individual is buried in the, you know, the tool that this uh, HR company that I've got a very small ownership percentage in, they've got a tool that does that. It's based on a, you know, evaluation of individuals. Vistage was really, really good at saying, this is how you evaluate people. This is how you figure out who your A players are, your B players, your C players, people that are in play. Do you really need to move people out of the organization? Um, that was probably the biggest thing that Vistage taught me. They, they really did a great job. I think the second thing that I learned from Vistage that I really enjoyed was the, uh, the, the ability to interact with other small business owners and solve problems that I just couldn't figure out by myself, right? Now, look, you know, Steve and I were together and we interacted on all the issues that we ran into and all the things that we had to deal with. But also, you know, uh, the the flip side is there were plenty of things as a CEO that was just kind of on my plate that I needed to deal with, right? Um, And, you know, being able to sit with other company owners that had solved that problem or had experience, that was huge. That was just huge. Um, you know, I could sit down and, you know, they, the, the, they would force us to bring a problem to the table every month. You've always got problems, right? That was big. I'd bring it to the table. I got fantastic ideas from the people in that organization. One of the biggest was, do we sell the company, right? When I laid out all the different things uh, that were on, that, on the table, you know, the people that I was working with said, we think that, you know, given where you are and what you want to do going forward and X, Y, and Z, you know, it seems like a really good idea, right? And then, of course, you know, the other owners, the fig leaf were like, yep, yeah, makes sense. And we went out and we did that. And that's its own effort by itself. Um, and, you know, um, uh, sort of a, another thing, a third thing, which I didn't mention, was Vistage was all about measures of success in your organization. Mm-hmm. And that sale was one of them, right? It was like, hey, if I can, if I can sell our company, I've built something that's sellable, that's a services business. For a certain multiple of EBITDA, a, a decent, a very good multiple of EBITDA, then that's a success metric. And they taught me that in a way that I hadn't really looked at in the past. So yeah. those three things, three good things. That that that's awesome. And I think that's great to hear because I think a lot of people are you know, I'm sure are wondering if they should go through Vistage, if they should use it, and myself included. I have not done Vistage, and I think that might be something that that maybe I'd benefit from. So, um, so. Uh, there are two other things I wanted to ask you about. So how did, so, and they're probably related because when did, when did you start your current concern again? What year was that? 2018. 2018. Okay. So you, so you, you sold fig leaf, you started Mm -hmm. your next concern 2018. Um, I'd love to hear about that. And then I'd also love to hear about how COVID has changed you, changed your approach to business. Um, And I imagine that wouldn't have anything to do with, uh, you know, with fig leaf because, that would have been a, a couple years yeah. in the past. Um, so, yeah. so, uh, so, what, what, what's your your current venture all about? And well, uh, we're a we're it's a small firm. We're focused on cloud management, application development in the cloud, and DevOps. That's really kind of what our sweet spot is. Um, we work primarily with Amazon and Microsoft. Although right now it's really for for cloud services, it's really on the on the Microsoft side. Um, very focused at this point on those three things. And that's a pretty big bucket. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, it's it's not a business that, uh, you know, is tied into what we did at Fig Leaf, like product resale or or content management, right? That's that's just not our, that's not our area. It's all real app dev. But mixing that, because with app dev, you got to have that cloud and got to have that DevOps focus. That's what we're kind of, you know, looking at. Yeah. Um, so we focus on line of business application development and then all the things that surround it, right? You know, before this call, I was assisting one of my clients that's looking to bring somebody in. I was helping them interview, right? 
So that's, you know, part of the app development side, which is, hey, we're going to do app dev and we need somebody that can do it. So, you know, I was assisting them in you know, evaluating that individual um, to bring into the organization. So it's, you know, there are a lot of firms that do what my company does. There are a lot of small firms like us, which is fine because there's a lot of business out there. Um, but the COVID side is kind of interesting because I'll tell you the biggest thing that COVID did for me. Here's another thing where forest for the trees, right? And COVID really just changed my entire, my entire outlook on this. Remote development. Now at Fidleaf, we did a fair amount of remote, of remote, remote dev, right? I had a really hard time letting people work from home, right? Because I just couldn't get over. Now we did, I, that was one of the things where I ended up having to let people do it. Number one, the government contracts I had, most of them were like, you're not allowed to work in our offices anymore. And I didn't want to pay for big office space. I had big office space, smaller office space. You know, at the heyday, Figleaf was paying 50 grand a month in rent. <laughs> that was one of the things that I could, if I could have taught myself from day one, keep that overhead low, right? And Steve, if he was here, he'd say the same thing. That was one of those things, the two of us together, you know, teamed up and we were like, yeah, we got to, you know, we got to bring this down. And primarily him, he was the one screaming down, 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 right? So. We had allowed a lot of people to work from home. We didn't have the choice, right? Um, but man, I love going to that office every single day. And I really wanted people in the office. Um, COVID hits and I was, you know, I had these clients that I'm working with and I had this development that was supposed to happen. And my plan was that I was going to bring developers in to work on site with the clients that I had. And they had to be there. They had to be in person. I couldn't trust that they were going to work remotely 100% of the time. They could work remotely some, right? Not for this kind of development that we were doing. That's done. That's out the door, right? Finished, gone, see you later. COVID changed that for me completely. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, it didn't change my want to go to an office, get a little, get a little uh, cabin fever working from home 100% of the time. Um, but, but I will say that I've got no, you know, I've done stuff this last year. I've got people, you know, working on multiple continents is the best way to, to say it. Multiple continents at this point. Now, I try to focus in, in areas where I've been successful getting people uh, that are that are off site. But it, COVID completely changed that for me um, and my business. Now, a lot of other people are already doing that, but I was able to figure out for me at least how to be successful with it how to evaluate the people that yeah. work remotely and also how to figure out the ones that are kind of playing games and, you know, shift that business. That was a big thing. Changed, you know, um, everything. Um, and then, of course, you know, the ability to meet remotely and actually get things done when you're trying to pull requirements out of a business unit yeah. and you've got six people in teams, right? use Zoom a little bit, but a lot of, most of my clients are using Teams mm -hmm. and doing all that stuff in Teams and keeping people engaged, pulling it all together, changing what you're doing on your desktop because you're going to be sharing it, right? Think about that for a minute. You know, you don't want people yeah. to see all the different things you have. COVID changed all of that for, uh, you know, for me. I've got people I've never met face-to-face, -face, ever. Yeah. And that was unusual for me, so. Yeah, you know, I, I completely respect that. And so I had a, probably a, a bit of a head start on you on that. I because because when I started, I was freelance, you know, I wasn't building a company. I mean, I was building, you know, I was building a career as a freelancer before I started growing the business. And, you know, I so I so I had to learn myself how to work remotely because that just turned in kind of organically became my model. And it took me a couple years to really figure out how to scale remotely, you know, and, you know, there were a lot of different iterations and, and now I've got a, I do actually have a blended model because I have a, a reasonably sized office in, in Europe, um, that there, you know, it, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's a daily office that's in use and, you know, it's great. Love the, love that office space. The, uh, you know, in the U S there's not, there's, there's remote offices, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, but, but ultimately, um, the office in Europe has to work with people remotely and the office in the U S has to work with people remotely. So even though we've got that office space and it's, you know, fully used, um, it, it 
you still need to learn how to deal with the fact that other people are remote that you're dealing with. So both clients and, and, and actually that was the big thing for me. I, from the beginning, had clients all over the world. And so it felt like it was almost additional training to, as I hired people, to have them be all over the world so that then, you know, because the whole idea is that the clients should never feel like it's a problem that you're not there physically. And the same thing for our team, you know, it's got to be seamless no matter what. So, so in any case, I, I, you know, I, I definitely respect having, going through that change. It's a, um, it, it, I had a very hard time at Fig Leap when we initial, initially mm. started to let people, and we had plenty of people that worked remote. I, I just didn't know. I, it, for me, it was because mm-hmm. we had people in different states. I mean, we did business in yeah. a fair number of states. It was just the the attitude that I took about sort of if you're doing this ground up development and this type of work, et cetera, et cetera, because we had also had a number of contractors that we had we had pulled in remotely that we had issues with at Big League, right? Mm-hmm. I guess at the end of the day, it was all about how you manage people, right? And, you know, that's, that's kind of the key. So, so uh, you know, the, the, the other comment I'd make on it is um, one insight I took from the, from sports was uh, I, there was an interview with the, the greatest wrestling coach, you know, on earth right now, um, the coach of Penn state. And, and somebody asked him, how do you keep your athletes motivated? You know, how do you motivate them? Cause you know, we've all got this popular idea that the great coach pumps up the athletes and makes them, you know, and he responded kind of surprisingly he said, well, you know, we try to hire, we try to, to recruit kids who are naturally motivated, who are self-motivated, who are, you know, and, and, it, you know, it's interesting because I, I think that really does carry over to this because, you know, if you hire somebody who is going to be remote, they know they're going to be remote. They're motivated to make it work. They're gonna, that's the kind of person who's going to be a good team member in this new remote environment. You know, you hire somebody who's maybe not quite you know, built for it. And, uh, you know, then you've got a real management job, which, you know, you, which you don't need. <laughs> I'm looking for, you know, I, I, I tend to ask individuals certain questions um, when I'm evaluating about them. Right. Um, like, do you have any hobbies? Mm-hmm. Like, I run. Okay. And uh, when COVID hit, I just figured I wasn't going to be walking from, you know, to an office. Cause I was going into, you know, client offices. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to step my running up. So I run every day since March the 23rd of 2020. Every single day I run every day. A little bit, a couple of injuries. So I've had to cut back on how much I run, but every day, right? It's this goal. But that self-motivation to me is a marker. Um, If you can, and I will ask people for things that show me that self-motivation, because if you can find that, in the people that you're evaluating, then you'll know you've got that player that can work from wherever, do whatever, get whatever done, mm-hmm. right? There, there are a couple of markers that you can figure out, especially if you ask people about, you know, just different things about personality, as it were, then you'll know, you know, if you're hitting it, yeah. because you don't, you just don't. I mean, I've, I have had that issue. You can always tell when somebody's actually not getting it done, yeah. um, or they're kind of, cramming it in or they're doing this or they're doing that or they're really not giving you that time when they're remote. Um, I guess the end of the day, I had actually had a developer. He was just, he was getting it done, but he was saying it was taking him a lot longer than it would actually was, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of the day, I could tell, I knew. No, work got done, client was happy, but it was the amount of hours ascribed to it were way more than they ever should have been, right? Yeah. And I could just kind of pick that up. Um, you know, didn't pick it up initially, but surely picked it up halfway into the project. Very successful. We got it done, but there was that marker. Um, I was like, you know what? The next time I'll look for sort of a flip side. Yeah. Uh, it, it can be challenging. It really can. Yeah. So, so um, uh, you've got your, your current business now. What kind, of, uh, what, what kind of clients are you looking for? What kind of, you know, what's your priority, right? And what's your growth priority? At the moment, well, you know, the growth priority that I'm looking for, the clients that that we're looking for, they're primarily, uh, you know, small to mid-sized companies that are looking for line of business application development, assistance in the cloud, assistance migrating to the cloud, 
Um, or, you know, uh, assistance with maybe they've got, you know, an application suite that they're working with and they don't really have their DevOps set up in a way that's truly, I like to call it bus proof. It's a joke, right? Mm-hmm. I'm working with an organization and I get hit by a bus yeah. and the organization has to be able to go forward, right? So those, you got to operationalize everything that you do in the application development space. It just has to be. Run books for documentation, et cetera. So I'm looking primarily for those small to mid-sized organizations that are, you know, they know that they need application development or they need assistance in the cloud, um, or they've got applications that are built um, and they need to really step up that development operations uh, suite that they have, move things around, operationalize it and organize it. Um, You know, that's where we are today because you want to grow to point, it's set a goal, grow to point, you know, B. And then you start to look at much larger organizations, right? Assisting them and building things for those bigger companies, as it were. So, well, I so we we are uh, getting towards the end here, and uh, I really appreciate your time. This has been great to uh, to hear from you and to and to learn about uh, your experience with Fig Leaf, what you're doing now. I, you know, I I hope uh, I hope you get some new uh, interest from this podcast and from coming out here. Uh, you deserve it. I appreciate it. it, Will. It was fantastic. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. 